Norway, 1903. On a farm named Oseberg, a man named Oscar is working. He's a farmer, but today he's digging into a Viking Age burial mound. About 20 years earlier, on the nearby Gokstad farm, a group of teenagers discovered an intact ship bearing the body of a Viking warrior. Oscar is convinced that something similar may lay hidden underneath his own feet. He stops for a moment, turning his face into a breeze and wiping his brow. After catching his breath, he gets back to work. Professor Gabriel Gustafsson is in his office at the University of Christiania, Oslo today. There's a knock at the door, and he sighs in frustration. Besides being a professor, he is the director of the Museum of National Antiquities at the university. He doesn't have time for interruptions. He answers the door to find a man standing there expectantly. It's Oscar, and he's holding something. Professor Gustafsson prepares to tell him to leave, but then he takes a closer look at what he's holding. It's a small piece of wood, unassuming at first, but covered from end to end in ornate carvings. Clearly, these are very old and done by a master craftsman. He takes a step back and invites Oscar in. Two days later, Professor Gustafsson, his colleague, Dr. Hakan Schettlig, and the rest of their team arrive at Osberg and begin excavating what will turn out to be one of the most important archaeological sites from the Viking Age ever discovered. Welcome to Throughlines. On this show, we're going to talk about old things, artifacts, even treasures, made by the people who came before us. This season, we'll focus on items found in burial sites around the world. On this, our very first episode, we will focus on the Viking Age burial site from the Osberg farm in the region of Vestfold, Norway. The Viking Age is generally considered by historians to be from the late 700s, beginning with the raid on a monastery called Lindisfarne in England and ending in 1066 with the death of Harald Hardrada during the scramble for the vacant English crown. Most of us are familiar with the idea of Vikings today, seafaring raiders from ancient Scandinavia who wreaked havoc in England and Western Europe, but that was only a part of who those people were. Also called the Northmen or Norse people, they lived across modern-day Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, later spreading to Iceland and across the British Isles. They were great explorers, traveling as far west as Greenland, and according to their sagas, mainland North America. They were great traders, ranging as far east as modern-day Ukraine and Russia, taking part in the founding of Kiev. They were great craftsmen, producing arms, armor, and varied goods from their workshops across Britain. The Norse people also had varied funeral traditions. Some people were cremated, but many were buried, and the customs for burial were different across the Norse lands. Some graves were simple and others extravagant, according to the wealth and importance of the person buried there. Typically, there would be an assortment of items, known as grave goods, buried with the deceased. Sometimes these were treasured personal items or things that may assist them in the afterlife. As a seafaring people, ships and boats were important to the Norse way of life, and that importance carried over into death as well. 
A common burial ritual was to place a ring of standing stones in the shape of a boat around the dead person's final resting place. In some cases, a whole ship was lowered into the ground and the person along with their goods were buried inside of it. Once this was done, the ship would be covered with stones and earth and a large mound raised over the site. What Oscar uncovered was one such grave. Inside, it contained an almost 1,200-year-old ship, which in turn held numerous grave goods and the bodies of two women. It brought with it the keys to a large part of Norway's cultural heritage and unique art tradition, and posed many questions and challenges for researchers and conservationists. The Oseberg ship is currently part of the collection of the Museum of the Viking Age in Norway, along with the rest of the items from the gravesite. The ship is made of oak, with the deck and the mast made from pine. There are spaces for 15 oars on each side, meaning that it would need 30 people to row. The ship itself measures approximately 70 feet long and 16 feet wide with a striking profile, long, low, and wide. The prow and the stern of the ship rise high above the waterline, with the prow spiraling into a serpent's head. If you were to ask any modern person to picture a Viking ship, I think most of us would picture something that looks pretty much exactly like the Elseberg ship. Perhaps the most striking of its features, however, are the carvings. The carvings appear on both the inside and outside of the ship, following its curves and climbing up the prow and stern. On the outside, these appear to be animals, while on the inside, they appear to be human, though they do have a ghoulish appearance to them. Perhaps they're meant to be spirits of the dead rather than living people. The carvings are striking and beautiful, but they are also important. Professor Gustafsson writes that the discovery of the carvings throws a new and unexpected light upon the culture of the period, and it is especially the ornamentation and wood carving, hitherto an almost unknown branch of art that opens out new vistas for the understanding of the early history of Norway and the North. Speaking not only of the ship, he says, On many of the objects, there is lavish such artistic and careful work that they can rightly be called treasures of beauty, though the material is only mere wood. Before the discovery of the Osberg site, it was generally accepted that the Norse people of the Viking Age did not have their own distinctive art style, that they merely borrowed and copied from the other people around them. This has been proven to be untrue, and art experts have now identified six distinctive periods of Norse art from the Viking Age. The earliest is named the Osberg style, after this find, and includes art from approximately 775 to 875 AD, overlapping slightly with the art style that follows it. Professor Anton Brugger, the successor of Professor Gustafsson, calls the Osberg ship the first monumental work of Norwegian art. The predominant features of the Osberg style are what art historians call gripping beasts and ribbon animals, abstract forms of creatures and sometimes humans that intertwine and overlap with each other. Sometimes the animals are identifiable and sometimes they're not. Sometimes individual figures are discernible and sometimes not. The beasts that adorn the Osberg ship appear to have somewhat horse-like faces, but more fierce. Their bodies are covered with patterns that evoke scales, suggesting dragons or sea serpents. I've been speaking of creatures carved into the ship as though it were a series of separate carvings, but really these are all part of one continuous unbroken carving that borders the ship dropping beneath the waterline and climbing all the way up the prow and stern until ending in the serpent's head. The Museum of the Viking Age notes an interesting detail. 
The animal figures on the outside of the ship look around in all directions, forwards, backwards, and straight ahead, directly at the observer, as though they're keeping a lookout for danger from all sides. Inside, however, the ghoulish human figures stare straight ahead into the heart of the ship, perhaps as a reminder that danger could come from inside as well as outside. The artistic beauty of the ship speaks to the presumed wealth of the person who had it built. Many historians believe that this ship was built for a queen, while some have suggested that it could have been for a wealthy merchant or even an important shaman. One thing that is certain is that this was not an average Viking ship. Professor Brugger tells us that it was not a seagoing ship, but probably would have stayed close to the coastline or traveled up rivers. He described it as the queen's pleasure yacht. The oars buried with the ship show no signs of wear, leading some to speculate that they, and possibly the ship, were made just for the burial itself and never actually sailed. If that is the case, it would speak even more so to the wealth and importance of the person buried there. As beautiful as the ship is to look at, it was not in this state when it was found. While well-preserved, it was not undamaged. When Professor Gustafsson arrived to investigate the site two days after his visit from Oscar in August 1903, the University of Oslo Museum tells us this about what he found. He found several parts of a ship decorated with ornamentation from the Viking era. The archaeologist was certain that the mound was a ship burial from Viking times. The ship was lying in the burial mound facing the south with a mooring rope tied around a large stone. A burial chamber built of timber was situated behind the mast of the ship where the sail would be. Stones were thrown over the entirety of the ship and then it was all covered over with layers of peat and earth forming an airtight covering. The weight of the earth thrown on top of it and the years that it lay underground meant that although the wood was well preserved, much of it was broken apart from its original shape and would need to be repaired. The real work of excavation did not begin until almost a year later in the summer of 1904 to allow for more favorable weather conditions. Professor Gustafsson tells us in a journal for the Viking Society for Northern Research that the whole find was happily brought safely to Christiania, modern-day Oslo, just before Christmas in 1904. After a number of administrative hurdles, he tells us that the find was in the possession of the Museum of National Antiquities by March 1905, and that he found himself in, quote, a bewildering position. His own words describe it best. The whole of the ship lay stored in many thousand fragments, together with the planks of the burial chamber and a quantity of other rough timber. In the cellars of the new buildings at the museum, were placed quite a number of tanks, in which 379 packages of wooden articles were deposited in water, as these could only be preserved by being kept continually wet. And in addition, there were a quantity of other things, which did not demand this troublesome method of preservation. All these things had been well and happily rescued from the Earth's custody and brought to a safe place under lock and key. They had now, by careful handling, to be made safe for the future. He tells us that nothing much more was completed in 1905, but after, quote, vigorously embarking on the task of putting the ship together, it was reconstructed after nearly a year's work. The process was painstaking. The wood had to be dried out before any work could begin, and in many cases then had to be steamed in order to be restored to its original shape. The restorers took great care to salvage and use as much original timber as possible, introducing as little modern material as they could. Their efforts paid off, and the ship as it stands today is made from 90% of the original timber. 
Professor Brugger says that such an achievement was made and that the Osberg discoveries obtained so great historical importance are very largely due to the enormous care and energy displayed by Professor Gustafsson. After the work of reconstruction, the ship remained in storage at the university, waiting for a more permanent home. An architectural competition to design the museum that would one day house the ship was held in 1914, but the outbreak of the First World War delayed these plans. Finally, the building of the museum began and the ship was first moved to its new home in 1926. Sadly, Professor Gustafsson passed away in 1915 and was not able to see the exhibition of his greatest work. The legacy of the Oseberg ship continues, however. In the following years, the museum was expanded, and the Gokstad ship, which inspired Oscar's digging, and another buried ship known as the Toon ship were added, occupying their own wings in the museum. Today, the museum hosts around half a million visitors annually, and construction has begun on a new, more modern museum of the Viking Age, expected to open in 2026. The new museum aims to display the collection in a safer and more audience-friendly way than is possible today, and to ensure future generations access to cultural and historical knowledge and understanding of the Viking Age. Many objects, including the Osberg ship, will be treated with more modern conservation techniques in the interim to ensure that they survive for generations to come. While the ship is undoubtedly the crown jewel of the find, there were many other objects in the grave. Known as grave goods, these were objects placed inside the grave because they would be useful in the afterlife, as religious offerings, or because they were treasured possessions of the deceased person. There are too many to name them all individually, but Professor Brugger gives us a general overview. Inside the burial chamber, there were several sacrificial animals, 14 horses, three dogs, and two oxen, in case you were wondering, two oak chests containing a wide variety of domestic goods, things like lamps and iron scissors, another oak chest containing fruit and grain, apparently there were around 50 apples inside, and a side note, researchers tell us that the quantity of vegetation included in the grave indicates that the burial probably took place soon after the harvest, in August or September. They also found two looms and a winder for yarn. There were woven tapestries and other textiles and a large quantity of silk. There were buckets and pails, two beds carved in a similar fashion to the ship, rope and down pillows, as well as assorted kitchen items, including pots and pans. Perhaps the most curious and intriguing items found in the burial chamber were four finely carved and decorated wooden posts in the shape of animal heads, joined together by a rope going through their mouths. Outside of the burial chamber, there were even more items, including a four-wheeled wagon intended to be pulled by two horses. There were four sleighs, three of which are richly carved, while one was more plain and utilitarian. Finally, there was one more animal head post, just like the four found inside the chamber, joined by a rope. At the fore of the ship, there were assorted items associated with sailing, such as oars, a gangway plank, anchors, and the like. In addition, there were undoubtedly more riches buried here before ancient grave robbers made their entry. It's odd, to me at least, to think of a Viking with things as mundane as frying pans or scissors, but of course they had those things. It helps to humanize these people, to bring them out of the near-mythical fog where they seem to reside so often in our imagination. One of these items has achieved a level of fame and notoriety that far exceeds its seemingly mundane nature. 
the so-called Buddha bucket. At first glance, the bucket in question is very ordinary. It is made of yew wood and bound by three bronze bands. It is also fairly small, only about 14 inches high and 12 and a half inches wide. There's a simple bronze handle attached to the top. What makes this particular bucket interesting, however, is that the handle is attached by two small bronze figures in the shape of men, known as escutcheons, sitting in what appears to be the lotus position. Their legs cross with their hands resting open on top of them. The chest of the figure contains intricate red and yellow enamel in four cells, divided by a blue and white cross. It looks remarkably like the typical image of Buddha. So much so, in fact, that Professor Gustafson says his first words when seeing it were, This is Buddha, of course. This was an exciting prospect. Viking trade networks were known to extend as far east as modern-day Ukraine, but the presence of a figure of Buddha in a Viking grave could indicate travel even farther east than was previously thought. That was not the case in the end, however. Historians and art experts have shown that this item is almost certainly Celtic in origin. This type of escutcheon and the enamel technique was very characteristic of art created by Celtic people during the early Christian period, and the Vikings seemed to be particularly fond of Celtic goods. Large numbers of personal ornaments and bronze vessels of Celtic origin have been found in Viking tombs. As for the Buddha-like posture, it seems likely that this is an image of Kernunos, a pagan Celtic deity sometimes known as the Lord of the Animals, who was frequently depicted in a squatting posture. Despite this conclusion, the name Buddha Bucket was just too catchy to go away, and persists to this day. While the Buddha bucket represents the Celtic artistry of the time, there are many examples of the distinct Scandinavian style evidenced by the ship present among the burial goods. In fact, Dr. Shedlig began to see the objects buried in the grave as the personal art collection of a great Viking queen. The five animal heads, the large cart, and the three ornate sleighs are all masterful works of wood carving, and Dr. Shedlig has identified six distinct artists at work among them. He calls them the Academist, the Master of the Fourth Sleigh, the Baroque Master, the Impressionist, the Eclectic, and the Master of the Ship, responsible for the carvings on the Osberg ship itself. The horse-drawn cart stands apart from the others with a distinct style of its own, and Dr. Shadelig says that certain peculiarities indicate that it was carved by the Master of the Ship. He describes the cart as large and high, of imposing aspect but also clumsy and impractical. It would have been pulled by two horses and was most likely used in a ceremonial or religious capacity. The carvings on the cart seem to reinforce this idea, depicting scenes from mythology that would have been immediately recognizable to the contemporary people. The carvings on the rear of the cart depict cats, most likely an allusion to the goddess Freya, who traveled in a cart pulled by two cats. Another carving depicts a man being surrounded and attacked by snakes, possibly depicting the death of the legendary hero Ragnar Lothbrok, or the death of Gunnar from the saga of Sigurd Fafnisbein. Another carving depicts a battle between three men, one of whom is mounted. It is unclear what tale is being depicted here. While striking and clearly an example of the Norse woodcarving art form, the carvings themselves seem to be of an older and more traditional style possibly reserved for ceremonial and religious functions. The flowering of the unique Oseberg style can be seen most clearly in the five animal head posts found in the gravesite. In my opinion, these objects are the most fascinating of all. 
Dr. Shedleg calls them the most refined masterpieces that were found in the grave. But he also acknowledges that they are of, quote, doubtful purpose. They have a certain gargoyle-like appearance with open mouths and bared teeth. Some have elongated dragon-like faces while others are more rounded, making me think of a big cat like a leopard. The Museum of the Viking Age suggests that these were probably believed to have magical warding properties against supernatural forces. The heads themselves sit atop of half-meter-long shafts that were most likely used to attach them to a wall, possibly guarding a doorway or flanking an important leader. Dr. Shetlig attributes the five animal heads to the work of the Academist, the Master of the Fourth Sleigh, and the Baroque Master. He calls one of the two animal head posts carved by the Baroque Master the richest and finest piece of wood carving we possess of all of the Queen's collection. Together with the three carved sleighs, he traces the development of the Osberg style from its classical Greek and Roman influence roots with the Academist into a more fully fledged and unique style with each artist injecting more individualism as time goes on. Like the ship, the richness of the carvings found on the three sleighs in the grave speak to the wealth and importance of the person buried there, and really, to call them richly carved it doesn't come close to describing it. Unlike the cart, the sleighs don't bear specific scenes but are more abstract. It's hard to describe the complexity and the density of the carvings present on the sleighs, with the dizzying number of shapes and motifs tumbling over each other and blending together. It's almost unfathomable how much time and skill it would have taken to complete them. In addition to the carved wooden items, there were a large amount of textiles found in the burial. There were patterned wool fabrics that were most likely used as furnishings, patterned silk most likely worn as ornaments on clothing, and multicolored silk embroideries. In addition to these, there were ornamental tapestries as well. While many of the textiles are badly degraded, some of the artistic elements were able to be reconstructed. One of the tapestries includes what seems to be a military scene, with images of horses, people, and chariots. Among those gathered are a man wearing a bearskin and a group of women with shields and spears. Another depicts people hanging from the mythical tree Yggdrasil. Weaving was done exclusively by women in Viking society, and the presence of looms, a yarn winder, and the quantities of raw materials in the burial indicates that the women buried here knew the craft well. Whether they made the textiles and clothing buried with them is uncertain. Dr. Shedley envisions these items, along with the wood carvings, as the art collection of a great queen, and he suggests that the area around Oseberg, the region known as Vestfold, must have been a great cultural center and the queen herself a great patron of the arts. But who was this queen? And was she a queen? There were very few skeletal remains found in the grave when it was opened, but there was enough to determine that one of the women was significantly older than the other. Professor Gustafson tells us that a great deal of the skull of the older woman was able to be pieced together and that much of her bones were still present. But of the younger woman, only a little heap of fragments of bone were found and a small portion of her skull. The remains were initially examined and reported on by Professor of Anatomy Gustav Goldberg, and later re-examined by Professor Christian Schreiner. Professor Schreiner estimated the age of the older woman at between 60 to 70 years old, and the younger as 30 to 40, possibly as young as 25. The skeleton of the younger woman showed signs of a broken collarbone, but good health otherwise. 
The older woman showed signs of osteoporosis, old injuries to her back and neck vertebrae and her knee, as well as cancer, most likely coming about in her old age. In 1948, after a long process of appeal and protest from the Vestfold Historical Society, the bones were reburied on the original burial site, over the protests of Professor Brugger and Professor Schreiner. Professor Schreiner stated, I cannot think of something more false than to arrange the bones of a Viking king or queen in a stone coffin in a reconstructed mound and finally put a tombstone on top of it. These are strong words, and in a final act of protest, some of the bones were retained by the museum and remain part of the collection today. DNA testing was later performed on the remaining bones from the younger woman. There wasn't enough present from the older woman to test, and it found the presence of the haplogroup U7. If you have ever had your DNA tested or watched a TV show about people researching their family history, the word haplogroup may be familiar to you. Generally speaking, a haplogroup is a group of people that share a common ancestry. Haplogroups are given broad characterizations with alphabetical letters, and those characterizations are further refined by numbers. The haplogroup U7, found in one of the women buried in Oseberg, is extremely rare in Europe, but commonly found in people living in Iran. This may seem odd since we're talking about remains found in Norway, but put a pin in that for now. This is everything that we know for certain about the two women buried with so much honor in the Osberg grave. We can reasonably assume that at least one of them was wealthy and of a high social class. The richness of the ship and the grave goods indicate this, but the specifics of who they were remain a mystery. Such richness and honor naturally leads to the thought of royalty, and indeed we've already seen how the early researchers seem to assume that this was a queen's burial. If one of the women was a queen, the identity of the other may be solved as well. It was uncommon, but known, that human sacrifice was part of the Norse religion. The burial of an important ruler was one such occasion where the sacrifice of a slave or servant might be called for. Especially considering the age difference between the two women buried here, it seems to fit that this was an aging queen buried with a favorite servant. This isn't known for certain, and since only one of them yielded enough DNA to be tested, we don't know whether the two were related or not. Very early on in the study of the Oseberg burial, it was believed that the specific identity of the Oseberg queen was known. Professor Brugger believed Oseberg was the final resting place of Queen Asa, a figure from the Heimskringla. The Heimskringla, written by famous Icelandic writer Snorri Sturluson in the early 1200s, is a general history of the early Norse rulers going back to the very beginning of the Viking Age. He believes that the name Oseberg is a corruption of Asa's Berg, Berg meaning hill or mound in the language of the times. So who was Queen Asa? At the beginning of her life, the very beginning of the Viking Age, Norway was not a single united country as it is today, and neither were the nearby countries of Denmark or Sweden. Rather, it was a patchwork of territories ruled by a variety of different kings and lords. Her father was king of a territory called Agder in Norway. She was forcibly married to King Gutrod of Vestfold after he attacked her homeland, killing her father and brother in the battle. She bided her time and after cultivating the loyalty of her closest servant, she arranged to have King Gudrod murdered in revenge and then absconded back home with her one-year-old son. This son would grow up to be a great warrior king named Halfdan the Black. He led a campaign of conquest, beginning with Gudrod's kingdom of Vestfold, and he was able to defeat many rival kings and claim their territories, before dying an untimely death at the young age of 40. His son was a man who would come to be known as Harold Fairhair, for his beautiful hair, 
who would continue his father's legacy as a great warrior, eventually uniting all of Norway through conquest. As the man who first united all of Norway, Harald Fairhair is important indeed, and the daring and decisive actions of his grandmother made his success possible. Given the advanced age of the older woman in the burial site, if she was Queen Asa, she could have lived well into her grandson's successful reign and would undoubtedly have had access to the resources and wealth necessary to function as a patron of arts and culture, as Dr. Schettelig envisioned. She also may possibly have fulfilled an important ceremonial role, explaining some of the objects in the grave, such as the cart. The timeline seems to add up as well. The Vacuum Museum states that the Osberg ship was built around the year 820, and the year of Queen Asa's death, given by Dr. Schettlig, is around the year 850. Some have doubted the authenticity of Snorri Sturluson's work, however, at least concerning the earliest events. They point out that he was writing in the early 1200s, and the lives of Queen Asa and Harold Fairhair played out in the late 700s and early 800s, a few hundred years earlier. Some modern historians have questioned whether Harold Fairhair even existed at all, suggesting that he is more of a mythical origin figure, akin to King Arthur. If Harold Fairhair didn't exist, perhaps his father, Hofdan the Black, and his grandmother, Queen Asa, didn't either. There is one point in favor of Snorri's accuracy, however, provided by the Osberg remains themselves. Remember earlier when I mentioned the DNA sample from the younger woman, and how it showed a haplogroup of DNA common in modern-day Iran? Another of Snorri's writings says that the earliest settlers of Scandinavia came from an area around the Black Sea, very close to modern-day Iran. If this is not a queen's grave, then who else could have warranted a burial like this? One theory suggests that it could have been an important shaman or seer buried here. This would explain the ceremonial nature of some of the objects. Ellen Ness of the Museum of the Viking Age in Oslo indicates that the mooring of the ship could hint at a shamanistic connection. Part of the Norse religion was the belief that some powerful shamans had the ability for their spirit to travel out of their body and even to travel the world after death. The mooring of the ship could have been a way for her people to assist her in finding her body again, providing a symbolic anchor to the spot of her burial. I find this theory fascinating, but again, it's mostly speculation. Another theory puts forth the idea that one or both of the women here have become wealthy and powerful by virtue of their own work. This idea looks at the richness of the tapestries and fabrics found in the grave, along with the implements related to textiles, and sees the remains of a successful commercial enterprise. But again, we don't have hard evidence in favor of this theory, and there's no way to be certain that the textiles in this grave were made by either of the women buried there. Each of the theories put forth are plausible, but none of them have been conclusively proven. And honestly, without some kind of inscription or the Old Norse equivalent of a tombstone, I'm not sure how they could be. The early researchers seemed totally convinced of the idea that Osberg is the resting place of Queen Asa. Dr. Schettelig takes it as a given in his analysis of the artwork found in the grave. For what it's worth, that explanation is the most likely to me. Her story may be wrapped up in near-mythical history, but the idea that there was such a woman who took part in establishing a large kingdom in Vestfold and was later buried with honor after a long life rings the most true to me. There is one last artifact from the burial that I haven't mentioned yet. It's a round piece of wood with a single word carved in runes. It has been described by some as a piece of an oar, by others as a shamanistic staff, but the Museum of the Viking Age simply lists it as a round pole with a runic inscription. 
The word carved on the staff is an enigma itself. It has been transcribed into English letters as Latiluism. The context of this word and the object itself are unknown, but the most agreed upon translation by linguists is strangely fitting. Man knows little. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of Through Lines. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed researching and creating it. Be sure to take a moment to check out the show notes for links to sources as well as other resources for further information about our topic today. I wanted to give special mention to the website and social media pages of the Museum of the Viking Age. Without those resources and the wealth of information they provided, I could not have made this episode. The website provides images and much more detail about the items found in the grave as well as much more information about the conservation and preservation of them. And they even have a 3D virtual tour you can take of the existing museum. And if you happen to be in Norway in 2026, definitely take the chance to go visit the new Museum of the Viking Age when it opens. 